Christmas, New Life Manitou. Merry Christmas, one and all. And to all a good night. I bid you adieu. Uh, no, according to the church's tradition, uh, Christmas is 12 days long. And so, like, I know we've had Christmas, but what about second Christmas? You know? <laughs> this is weird, this is the second day of Christmas. The wisdom of the church calendar tells us uh, that we're going to need just a little longer than one day to celebrate the mystery that God has inseparably united himself to humanity. That's <laughs> what's happened in the incarnation. God had, let's, let's get really precise with our incarnation language for a second. God has, bec- has become human in Jesus. God God is Emmanuel, God with us. And God can't stop, won't stop being God with us. That's what God has committed himself to being. He is now one of us forever in the person of Jesus. And that's really good news that God is with us, that God's for us. So merry second day of Christmas, everyone. Um, I say all of this in... um, the least contrived way, like, no joke, from the bottom of my heart, the least contrived way, and most realistic and, like, eyes wide open kind of way. Let me tell you about two Christmases. The first was uh, the Christmas of 1994, and it it, it actually comes on the the heels of a really good Christmas. Uh, My expectations were extraordinarily high. That is actually the Christmas of 93 right there. I have the Darkwing Duck gas gun is what I have. I am pointing it in my face in the face of my uncle uh, apparently you put like uh, some sort of cooking oil in it and it made some sort of smell and uh, that's what he was wanting me to anyway and the previous christmas i'd also gotten moon shoes if you don't know what moon shoes are moon shoes yes you know they are small trampolines that you strap onto your feet I don't know if they're le- they're actually illegal now in three countries, <laughs> including this one. Um, but no, no, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure you can eBay them or something. But uh, man, Christmas of 1994, that was the pinnacle. I, let me tell you, I have action, Star Trek action figures. That is the Star Trek bridge set that I have right there uh, to play with. That I actually got the Star Trek transporter um, that you could put your action figures in, and it worked with uh, mirrors and lights. You can like YouTube this. You really should. It worked with mirrors and lights, and you would then push a slider, and the figure would disappear through the transporter porter and make the sound it would be gone so if anybody's looking for like to ebay me a christmas gift for next year like i would not turn that down i bet it's like a thousand dollars or something on ebay or something in mint condition or something but this felt like a magical more it was a magical morning it was just like everything had stopped with the world everything is just right that's the Christmas of 1994. And then this is the Christmas of 1997. Um, I, uh, th- so three years later, it's actually a video screen cap, which is why uh, I thought about showing the video and I just couldn't. It like, oh, it rips my heart asunder. Um, this is three years later, how puberty changes things. Not only your body, but like, like your mind too, like your entire view of the world. You, um, I describe uh, 1997 as noteworthy. Uh, because I really, truly remember it. It was the Christmas when all of the magic had left the world, is the way I felt. 
Um, it was the Christmas morning, all my families together were unwrapping presents. And I remember just sitting there as we were unwrapping presents and being like totally dissatisfied with everything. Not like the presence, but like existence. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, I, I think it was a frustrate. It, it, I know, it, was a, it had to have been a frustrating Christmas for everyone around me. My brothers, my sister, my, well, she was really little. And uh, my parents, good, goodness. Um, but I was still pretty new to the whole being alive thing. Give me a break here. I was 13 years old. And I didn't know how to communicate what I was experiencing. Christmas had been magic right? It had been magic. Life itself had been magic, just like a bubble being blown. And it's like, oh my goodness. And then uh, here at the age of, uh, tender age of 13, I was flirting with my first existential crisis. Don't worry, they haven't stopped. Um, but I was asking like, where had all the magic gone? Where had all the joy gone, you know, and beauty and wonder? Like, where, where had it all gone? And so this morning, I want to uh, talk about a little bit about Christmas magic. I'm going to talk about the fade of Christmas magic and uh, how it returns. How it returns, my brothers and sisters. And so uh, to get us there, we're going to read from Luke 2, the familiar Christmas story. We're going to kind of jump right here in the middle of it, uh, in the middle of all the magic. Um, and then we will talk about, um, we'll watch the glow fade in the story, um, in this famous Christmas story. And then we'll work our way past two dead birds and baby blood. Um, and then we'll find our way to a shriveled old man who uh, is more alive than any of us are is what we'll do this morning. Sound good? Okay. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll read. Lord Jesus, breathe on us this morning. Breathe your spirit and your power into us, we ask and we pray. That's what we need. We don't need clever words. We don't need human words. We need gospel, eternal gospel, to light us on fire and make us alive and fill us with wonder and magic again. So do it this morning. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask these things. Amen. All right. So Luke 2 is pretty familiar. If you were here on Christmas Eve, we read it. It's the Christmas story. Of course we did. So uh, uh, verse 7 of uh, chapter 2. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths. And laid him in a manger, in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, <laughs> and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Christos, um, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. This is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, this is pretty familiar. We're all, this is all standard fare. Yes, 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 Christmas, magic. Yes, we're all familiar with it. And, if, and we stop right there. Um, but since um, 
but not even since the first Christmas has it stopped right there. Let's keep going. Verse 15, and so when the angels went away from them into heaven, and that strikes me as like the first like moment when the glow starts fading, right? Well, they were just here. <laughs> where, where, where are they? I can, see, I can see Orion, there's the Big Dipper, but like where, the, the, the magic is fading. It's like not even at the first Christmas did it, um, did, not even at the incarnation, the moment of the incarnation of God the Son, did it, did perpetual warm fuzzies and endless spectacular whiz-bang fireworks keep happening? Okay? <laughs> Somehow, in the mystery of how God has wired the universe, the glow fades. Eventually, the glow fades, and evidently, this is not a problem. We think of it as it's not a problem. And then, uh, so the, the angels go back to heaven and the shepherds said to one another, well, let's go over to Bethlehem and see what this thing has happened this here, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, they made, and they went uh, with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Uh, not Mary and Joseph lying in the manger with the baby. I should read that carefully. Uh, verse 17, there's a comma. Uh, and when uh, they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. Hey, we just heard about this child. They told and we just found you. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So these societal outcasts in shepherds um, go from hearing majestic otherworldly like choir in the hinterlands, like way out of Jerusalem, to crashing the makeshift maternity ward that smells of straw and goat. That's like, that's their evening. What did you do last, you know, what did you do on Christmas Eve? Well, that's what we did. Um, and they, they're overjoyed because they've been told what they would see. And uh, verse 17 and 18, they, um, they're actually... Uh, they're evidently um, hanging around Jerusalem. <laughs> they're like coming in and out. And they're like telling anyone who's going to listen. Like, we saw angels. Like, this is, and, and th this is here. What we, they told us we would see this. And people are marveling about it. Um, and when they eventually leave, and they do, and Joseph's very glad, like, it's good to meet you. Like, okay, thank you, thank you. Okay, oh, we're, we're really thankful for you too. Okay, go on. Go. She just had a baby. Can you just like go already? Um, like, they turned, it turns out um, these guests are getting louder as they are like, leave. have you ever had a guest that's like getting louder the longer they stay at your house? And you're like, go, oh, please just go. Luke says, uh, verse 20, he um, he uses the same language that he uses in Acts. Um, he says they're glorifying and praising God. And that seems to be in Acts. And even earlier when the, he, one of the words is used for the angel choir itself, it's like when people are like whooping and hollering and like just in praise. Like, yeah, 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 for that matter. Um, this, this is uh, all over all of what Luke has written, these words. And it seems to be loud words. Um, it turns out, I didn't know this until I like became an adult and started realizing different personalities and temperaments and stuff. But uh, some people, when some people encounter the sublime, the mysterious, the like exciting, the awesome, the awe-inspiring, like the some people get loud. 
I didn't. I would hypothesize that it's actually the same people who love going to large sports events and cheering at large sports events that are actually that like they're saying that people love cheering in stadiums and some people when they encounter the sublime they love to cheer at church. And that's a good thing. Like, I, I can imagine these grisly shepherds embracing one another, slapping each other's backs. They're laughing as they sing, like, the folk hymns of Israel. You know, they're, they're really excited here. Um, but as they're leaving, verse 19, the, Luke pans the camera over to, uh, to Mary. She just had a baby. <laughs> like, can she get some attention here? And uh, she's not frowning in this moment. But she's also like not quite smiling in this moment. She's just taking it all in. Just, she's, she's, just, she's not just lost in thought about it. She's like actively turning this moment over in her heart is what it like it says. She's prayerfully meditating on it. It's like silently treasuring this sacred ground that she and everyone else is on. It turns out some people, when they encounter the sublime, you know, the beautiful, the moving, the awe-inspiring, some people get Some people get quiet and there's nothing wrong. <laughs> there's nothing wrong. It, it's just too much to say. It's too, words would fail at this moment. Like speaking of it would actually, if we, if we spoke about it, it would betray the gravity of what we're experiencing right now. Some people get loud. <laughs> Some people get quiet when they experience like the glow. We should say it this way um, as we're making our way through. The holy evokes a host of healthy responses. The holy evokes a host of healthy responses. The, the shepherds are like hee-hawing and like backslapping and singing and Mary isn't saying a word. And you look around this room or any room where you find worshipers gathered, um, you uh, find some people who are getting so excited, like pumping fists and raising hands and like ready to shout, God is so good. And some people are getting still and just like gently opening their hands and ready to stop singing, God is so good. Both of these reactions are completely appropriate. <laughs> like, it's okay if they're happening in the same room. It's okay if they're happening in the same person. <laughs> like, Mary isn't trying to get the shepherds to be silent, and the shepherds aren't trying to get Mary to hoop and holler. I mean, she just had a baby. Could you not put anything else on her right now? Um, I, I rarely meet a person. Even whether they call it God or not, that hasn't had some kind of experience of, words fail, transcendent beauty and wonder and joy. Um, and some people get loud about it and some people get quiet and the church needs both, we, we should say. Um, we need charismatics and we need contemplatives. And so, like, we need those who gravitate towards explosive energy and action that changes the world. And we need people who gravitate towards quiet and listening and 
the perspective that's going to change the world. Like one, per, one group has perspective and the other group has action and we need both. Studies have actually shown how much of the church and modern culture um, as a whole uh, tends to value extroversion and action over introversion and reflection. Um, if you're an introvert, I'm not giving you any news. <laughs> a lot of times, the reflective and the quiet and the mystical, they end up self-selecting their way out of church, out of our churches, because modern everything is built for outwardness, for outward expression. But if you're more like Mary, if you're more like Mary, can I tell you one introvert to another? Like, <laughs> the church needs you. The church needs you. We need your listening. We need your deep processing. We need your perspective. Your introversion, if you didn't know, is a gift. It's a gift to, the, to those around you. It's a gift to your family. It is a gift to the church. And the extroverted energy around me is a gift to me. It's a gift to the church too. I love extroverts. I married an extrovert. They're, they're, I love them. They're enthusiastic and social and like they have an endless fountain of action, action, action. And that's a gift too. The holy evokes both reactions, both quiet and loud, and we know we're in a good place when both are celebrated, when both are valued. And now let's keep reading because those are the reactions to the glow, but the glow starts fading quick right here because verse 21 is the next verse. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, so there was a, there's a whole lot loaded right into those words. He was called Jesus, christened, you know, um, to use a... Um, an acronistic phrase, Christian, it was like Christian name. Um, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, uh, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is in the law of, Mo, of the Lord, um, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if this isn't the most like, stark contrast to a glowing fireplace and picturesque twinkling tree and snow coming down. I don't know what is, but let me tell you, nothing banishes sugar plum fairies quite like tearing the heads off of a couple of birds and cutting off a bit of your infant's body. Let me tell you, <laughs> that'll sober you up real quick. <laughs> I've never actually tried it, but I imagine it would do it. Um, that, you, you'd banish any kind of like holly jolly escapism um, that we might try to construct around Christmas. Christmas isn't about escapism. In just over a week here in the text, we've gone from angel armies singing in the fields to two dead birds and a bleeding baby is what we've got right here. Whatever kind of warm fuzzies we had, we're definitely now back in the real world of flesh and blood and hunger and food and life and death. Um, so let's go ahead and name the painfully obvious reality that we maybe we should name that Christmas is followed every year by earthy, ordinary life. And it's been like this since the first Christmas. If... 
I think that one tension, that's a tension that we have to wrestle with at some point. The tension that I couldn't quite name as a 13-year-old, as a um, I felt like Christmas is escapism. And, and let me tell you, Christmas as escapism doesn't work. It doesn't work. That, that, that's what Christmas felt like as a kid. It's like, have you seen the Star Trek bridge? Have you seen this gas gun? Let me shove it right in your face, uncomfortably close. Have you seen these trampolines strapped to my feet? Goodness. Um, and, and as a kid, um, at least for me and my circumstances growing up, um, it did feel like an escape from reality, you know, just for a day felt really good. And you circle that date on the calendar and you count down the days to everything being right with the world. Just for a minute. Oh man. Like, it's like you're crossing this vast desert of, of school days. Oh man, it's so parched and dry. And there's an oasis of paradise here in the middle of the wasteland. Christmas is the great climax of the year. But suddenly at the age of 13, I was suddenly aware that I was clinging to a climax that couldn't deliver what it promised. Like I was just totally dissatisfied with it. I was suddenly aware that like the oasis that I was looking for, it was just a mirage. I don't know if I'm speaking, surely I'm speaking to somebody today, that the, you want to know what was on the other side of the mirage of Christmas? More desert, more wasteland. It just felt, it felt like the lamest thing in the world <laughs> that we're getting together and tinseling up and putting tree. You know, what, what, honestly, I can remember it feeling like a farce. I remember it feeling like a farce. Okay, here's the time when we all just give each other some stuff. Hip, hip, hooray, holly, jolly, whatever. But then we're right back to the desert, you know? Uh, I was struggling hard with the fact that Christmas arrives and then the glow fades. Christmas fades like a mirage in the desert. And if I could go back and talk to like um, early puberty Brett, that'd be a trip. Um, if he would ever stop talking, um, I might get a word in edgewise. I would love to tell him that whatever Christmas is, I mean, like in a deepest sense, whatever Christmas is, it is not escapism. And that goes too with the entire enterprise of following Jesus. Uh, the life of faith uh, does not, the life of faith does not offer us, it offers zero escape from real life. That's not what it's meant to do. All of us have woken up in the real world once again. It's the day after Christmas. This is, it doesn't matter how quaint Brett calls it the second day of Christmas. It's the day after Christmas. Most of us have not been startled awake this morning by like the deeply sacred acts of sacrifice and circumcision on the eighth day. But most of us have been startled awake to our reality with, um, with our sacred responsibilities going to school, going to work, caring for those around us, like bringing order to a disordered world in whatever way that only we can, living the particularities of our particular lives, like all the ordinary earthiness of our daily lives. That's what we've woken up to this morning. And in the middle of all this earthiness, we find a shriveled old man that's more alive than any of us. And so verse 25 
says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christos, before he'd seen the Messiah. I wish I knew more about like how Simeon had like heard this from the Holy Spirit and how it was told to. I, I assume that it was like a gentle revelation like the Spirit gives to all of us, you know, the kind that makes you feel half confident, half crazy, you know, depending on the hour. Verse 27, and he came, into the, uh, he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant part, depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the nations, to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. This uh, little snippet here, the last part of what we're reading this morning, has become a rather famous prayer. It's uh, the nuke dimittis. It's Latin for, I don't know Latin, but it's Latin for now dismiss is what it's Latin for. It's been prayed through the centuries by the faithful at the end of the day is when it's prayed. And it's often like echoing through like hallowed halls of stained glass is normally where you hear this. But notice what's happening here. It's just a, like a simple story. It's business as usual in Jerusalem's temple. You've got dead animals over there and bleeding babies over here. Like we totally expect. That's just like a normal day in Jerusalem's temple. Uh, just an ordinary day. Uh, you got screaming children and animal corpses. Smells of barbecue on the altar. That's what the altar was, by the way. It was a big old barbecue pit. You know, you got animals on it. It smells good. Um, and yet, Simeon has a transcendent experience in the middle of all the sights and sounds and smells of this really ordinary day. We should say it this way. We experience the sacred more frequently when we anticipate it. Like Simeon is this old withered man who is just being faithful on just another ordinary day. This is a place that Simeon has been to like a lot. He's been worshiping there. He's been praying there. He's been wrestling with the spirit week after week for like his life. And he has this divine promise like burning within him, a promise that he hasn't seen fulfilled yet. A promise that if he's like anyone else in the biblical story, he like wanders quietly. Is this gonna come to pass? You know, like, is this, he, he's this old man who missed the nativity by a week. That feels like a huge bummer, doesn't it? It's like you, you live within walking distance of the world's first live nativity with a special guest star baby, like, play, in the middle of the nativity. Our very own Jesus, son of Mary, is in the, and he, what a bummer, man. He missed the first live nativity. He's like, you know, sacred magic shining down from a star. And the thing is, Simeon's been living a life where he can recognize sacred magic shining through flesh and blood. 
Most of the time we imagine in a story like this, I think we imagine baby Jesus as like this little glowing nuclear core that's like swaddled in clothes or something. But that's not what the picture we have here. This is screaming baby Jesus. This is bleeding baby Jesus is what we have here. This is helpless baby surrounded everywhere you look by dead animals, by a pile of corpses, by reminders of death. And, and somehow, Simeon recognizes the presence of God in the midst of all this. The sacred isn't shining from above, it's actually shining from within. The, the holy isn't somewhere else. It isn't sometime else. The holy divine presence is right here, veiled in the flesh of this infant, stained with blood and dust and spit up, is where the divine presence is. I, I can't explain precisely what happened to draw Simeon to this conclusion. It may be even possible that Simeon couldn't have explained what, what was drawing him to this baby, but what we do know is that Simeon was righteous and devout, verse 25. And on just another ordinary day, he found himself in the divine presence because he was expecting it. He was expecting it. He was watching for it. He had cultivated a life where he was expecting to see God's spirit at work. And that's the invitation for us today at the hinge point here between Christmas and New Year is to cultivate a life where we expect to see the new life of God breaking in among the corpses. That's what we're invited. I know, it's riddled with death. I get it. There's a lot going on. We are invited to wake up to the divine presence that isn't handcuffed to a season to realize that Christmas has never been about escapism. Christmas is a picture of what life is always like. It's, it's the kind of world that we're always living in. Politics run amok. Nations are raging. Caesars and presidents, you know, seem in charge. Kings and congresses. Claim the world, but don't look now. God is arriving in a gentle, lowly, forgotten place. Though there be no room for him in the inn or in guest houses or in places of power, God is arriving still to change the world. And God wants us to recognize it. He wants us to recognize his presence. And that means that we're invited into a life of prayer. And I get that that word evokes all kinds of stuff in us, depending on your background or whatever. And so I just want to say right now, there is no one-size-fits-all prescription for prayer in, in, in the scriptures or in uh, the tradition of the church. Uh, shepherds will pray differently then Mary prays. Um, what I'm inviting us to is practice prayer as you can, not as you can't. A lot of times we focus so much on like, man, other people are praying so much and that just seems like a, such a great way. And it's like, those are all the ways that you can't pray. Practice prayer as you can, not as you can't. 
Some people swear by getting up or like in the early hours of the morning and starting the day right with like coffee and a devotion and some journaling. And other people swear by like their small group that like they're committed to meeting weekly with this group of people and they pray together. And some people take walks is what they do. And some people tend plants as they're growing. They've linked it to some sort of practice, to some sort of earthy practice. I remember when the girls were young, um, the schedule felt so overloaded as a new parent that I would try to, I tried to make any feeding time of them to be prayerful feeding, just breathing out an exhausted prayer of thankfulness to God that though I am not thinking about him very much right now, he is feeding me in the same way that I am feeding this child that is unaware of how much I'm working for them. However you do it, whatever season you're in, whatever you're wiring in your temperament, and I'd be happy to point you towards resources, so come find me. Um, I would encourage you to pray as you can, not as you can't. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that praying can seem to work well for others, um, even other pastors I watch. And uh, some of them, some of the ways that they pray just don't resonate with me. If I were to be real, I wish they did. Um, some of them used to, actually. Like uh, so some of them might again one day, you know, in a different season or a different stretch. And it's easy to like say, oh, I wish I could be like them. But the invitation for all of us is to be cultivating a life where we are watching for the presence of God. Because prayer forms us into people who can recognize the sacred magic of every place, every person, every moment. (laughs) As Paul uh, quotes in Acts 17, it is in the spirit that we live and move and have our being. You have not looked at a place where God is not at work. Um, There were lots of people in the temple complex on the eighth day, after Christmas, and almost none of them recognized the presence of Emmanuel. God is with us. He's like literally over there. And we've only got two elderly people, Simeon and a prophetess named Anna in verse 36, who actually recognize the holy magic, the holy moment. Surely God would be showing up. He'd be showing up in angel choirs and heavenly lights and national revival. And sometimes those are the ways that God shows up. But very often God is showing up in the earthy ordinariness of this moment. God is in this place and we were not aware. And so the question is, as we move into a new year, is whether we'll awaken to the sacred presence that's all around us every single day. Christmas isn't a mirage, my brothers and sisters. It is a window into the future. It's a window, and it's a window into the present. I want to remind all of us that however we can, we're invited to pray, to develop rhythms of watching how God is already moving, how God is already arriving, and continue to cultivate prayers in our lives, not as we 
can't, but as we can, and we will discover, you will discover that Christmas isn't a mirage. Christmas is just beginning, my friends. And Easter is the climax when bleeding Jesus emerges from the pile of corpses to show us that death is the mirage and death is the intruder and death is the enemy that will fall and frustration and futility doubts and depression and hunger and illness and failing health and loneliness and fear and sorrow and sighing and the shadow of death that looms over all of us. Those things are the mirage. Death is the mirage and the passing, it's just a passing desert in this vast and endless continent that we are on of life and love and joy. Christmas magic does not fade. We can keep glimpsing it if we watch for it. Ultimately, the lowly love of God, the gentleness of a God willing to bleed on the eighth day of his life, on a cross and rise on the third day into new creation. Ultimately, he is going to rule the universe He's going to transform your future. He's going to save you and those you love. Christmas isn't over. It's hardly begun to dawn. My brothers and sisters, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You can hope. You can hope again. And so, Lord Jesus, we bring our lives to you this morning. We believe that you have come, and we celebrate the fact that you are coming again. And right now, we ask that you would remind us in every moment of our lives, but especially these moments where we come to your table, where we participate in the, the um, body and blood in such common everyday elements, that you are meeting us in the ordinary. Fill us with hope. Fill us with new life for the places where we are withered and dead. We ask that you would slay the things within us that are killing us and that you would draw us into your endless life of love for the sake of the world. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.